I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I interviewed David Rubenstein, author of the new book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers, which came out September 1, 2020. And we did the interview in front of a Zoom audience in Dallas for a program sponsored by the Greater Dallas Regional Chamber on September 29th. Enjoy! Thank you very much, John, and thanks to the Chamber for making this program possible. In his new book, How to Lead, David Rubenstein says this about one of the leaders he interviews. In any area of human activity or knowledge, there's always going to be one person who's the global gold standard. Well, besides all the achievements that John just mentioned about David in his introduction, in the field of interviewing, David is the gold standard. As you can see, as when he's the host of the David Rubenstein Show on Bloomberg TV and PBS. He has a great talent for pulling the best insights and stories out of his guests, and that's now been showcased twice in his books, The American Story, with the edited transcripts of his interviews with leading historians, and now, out about a month, how to lead his interviews with our top leaders. So, David, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking uh, this opportunity to give me this, uh, this chance to talk with you again. Well, David, the introduction to your new book may be the tightest essay on leadership that I've ever read. In it, you not only describe your lifetime fascination with leadership and your own life journey that puts you on the path to becoming a leader in so many ways, but it also has what you believe to be the 13 most important leadership traits. What was your process for identifying and selecting the 13 most important leadership traits? Well, of course, um, I lived a life where I observed many things, and uh, it was my experience after having talked to many great leaders around the world over many, many years, and some of whom I put in the book, these were the traits that I had observed myself and that many of these leaders themselves mentioned. So it was not that there weren't 14 or 15. I could have had a longer list, but these are the 13 that I thought that made the most sense to put in and talk about. One of the most intriguing of the 13 was the uh, trait of failure. And in your introduction, you talk about uh, what life was like for you in about 1980 and, and how uh, your fortunes uh, dropped rapidly, and that opened the door to new opportunities. Talk about how failure was important to your leadership. Yeah, I came from very modest circumstances and got very lucky. I got a job in the White House uh, with President Carter, and I had a West Wing office. I was going on Marine One, Air Force One, Camp David. I'm advising the president as a deputy domestic policy advisor. And then inflation hit. Gas lines hit, we had hostages in Iran, and we lost to Ronald Reagan. And so uh, all of a sudden, people told me how brilliant and great I was. When I called them for a job right after we lost the election, none of them would call me back. So finally, I got a job, and it took six months to do that. I couldn't tell my mother that her only child was unemployable, so I told her I had so many offers, I didn't know which one to take. Eventually, I think she didn't believe that. So I finally got a job practicing law again, but it took a long time. 
And it was clear to me that the other people that didn't want to hire me were, were probably right because I wasn't that good a lawyer. <laughs> well, your book's very first sentence says, you've always been fascinated with leadership. And on the third page, it appears your fascination began during your boyhood, during the presidency of John F. Kennedy, where you were elevated by his eloquent inaugural address, as well as his shrewd handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So how important is it for people to start zeroing in on leadership role models at a young age? I think it's quite important. I think every young person has people they look up to. I mostly looked up to sports figures in those days when I was young. Uh, the Baltimore Colts had a famous quarterback, Johnny Unitas. We had some great baseball players in, in, in Baltimore, Brooks Robinson, for example, Frank Robinson. But in the political realm, uh, John Kenny's gave this great inaugural address when I was in the sixth grade. And my teacher went through it with, with our class word for word. And I later went to work for the man who helped John Kenny with that speech, Ted Sorensen. I'd always admired what was, I thought, poetry in prose form, a brilliant speech. And in the back of my mind, it, it made me think I should go into government and give back to my country, kind of serve my country as John Kennedy had asked me to do and asked my generation to do. And I did that. Obviously, for the country, it didn't work out. We got inflation to 19 percent and uh, we had other problems, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Well, you have children and grandchildren. Did you think it was part of your parenting and grandparenting responsibility to nudge your uh, kids and grandkids toward finding their own role model leaders? Yes, uh, my grandchildren are too young now, but my children are now fully formed adults. They're in their 30s and, uh, you know, they have their own, um, you know, perspectives on what's important. I think most parents know that trying to tell your children once they become teenagers what to do with their, their lives, it doesn't usually work. So you can lead them, you can guide them in many ways, and you can give them some uh, role models uh, to, to think about, and you can try to be a role model yourself. But if you tell your children do this or do that, it probably will backfire. And I tell everybody, if you want to be successful in life, you have to find something you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about it, but your parents are passionate about it, it's not going to work. So you're obviously passionate about the practice of law and doing the kind of interviews we're now doing, and you're very good at it. Um, if your parents had told you not to do this, uh, you might still have done it anyway. Uh, my mother wanted me to be a dentist, but I had no passion for that. And so fortunately, I convinced that I might have arthritis in my fingers if I got older and it wouldn't be a good idea for me to be a dentist. So I, I went to do something I liked better. Now, the first interview in your book is with Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man. And for me, that interview had the most takeaways. When did you first realize that Jeff Bezos was a leader who was likely to move mountains. It wasn't when I first met him. I went out to talk to him about redoing a deal we had with, with his company. We had provided the bibliography of books in print that, so he could sell books over the internet. Um, and I met him the first time. It was a ramshackle company. It was very tiny. He had hardly any revenue. And I wasn't sure it was going to work out. In fact, he gave us some stock uh, and I sold it at the IPO because we didn't think it was going to be very successful. That would probably cost us about 6 or $7 billion had we held on to the stock. So I didn't really think he was going to be that successful. But in the end, Jeff had one thing that going for him. He had a vision that he could build a company selling not just books, but everything over the Internet. And he did that despite the fact that people on Wall Street said, you don't have any earnings. You got to produce earnings. He didn't care about earnings. He cared about market share and getting his brand name out there. And in the end, he had the last laugh. He's built one of the most valuable companies in the world, become the richest man in the world. I think now he's beginning to give back to society through philanthropy and other kinds of things like that. 
In fact, the first section of your book is about leaders who you call visionaries. <clears throat> and one of my favorite lines in the book is where Tom Brokaw was interviewing Jeff Bezos. And this was before Amazon started making profits. And so Brokaw was kind of gigging Bezos about, come on, profit, P-R-O-F-I-T. And Jeff Bezos responded, profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. That was right. a magical exchange. There's no doubt that uh, he had a vision and he pursued it. And most people that are visionary business leaders are people that have an idea and they will pursue it no matter what people tell them. So Steve Jobs with personal computers or uh, um, Bill Gates with personal software for computers, they have a vision of something and they're going to pursue that idea. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, when he was dropping out of Harvard, um, I heard about the idea he was pursuing. I said, that's never going to get anywhere. And I didn't invest. That was another brilliant idea that I missed. Well, let's talk about uh, Jeff Bezos a little bit. Uh, you identify in the interview uh, several of his leadership strengths. What, what are the uh, Bezos' strengths that stand out the most to you? Well, of course, he's a very smart person, but he has a vision of something, and he's determined to prove it. And so he doesn't really take no for an answer. And great business leaders are people that have a vision, and they pursue it no matter what cost it, it, it gets to them. And, and how difficult it will be. So it's his vision and his willingness to pursue it at all costs, which I think made him successful. He had a couple of lessons that he talked about in the interview, and I wish I had heard about them before. One of them was always get eight hours of sleep a night, which I didn't know. If I'd gotten eight hours of sleep a night over the last 30 years, I'd be maybe wealthier. Um, he always said, don't make any decisions before 10 a.m. He thinks it's important to make decisions after 10 a.m. and before 5 p.m. I wish I'd known that as well. But, you know, he had some ideas, and I would say he was a very good uh, interviewee. He has a good sense of humor, and I would say uh, I'm not surprised that he built a very successful company. Yeah. David, does it concern you that Bezos, who's obviously very smart, but nonetheless a flawed human being, has so much wealth, power, and influence in 2020? Well, um, I, I actually like the capitalist system, and under the capitalist system, there are some people that are going to make a lot of money, and there are some people that are not going to make a lot of money. In the end, uh, you can't take your wealth with you. You can't be buried with your wealth. So in the end, people that make this enormous amount of money eventually consider what they should do with it. And they always, not always, but invariably, they come to the decision that giving it away, as Bill Gates is now doing and Jeff Bezos is beginning to do. So if you told me, is the system perfect we have in the United States and the capitalist system? No. We have a large income inequality problem. We have a large social mobility problem. But in the end, I don't know of any country that has a better capitalist system. And I think the capitalist system is better than any other economic system I've seen or heard about. Well, your second interview in the book is with Bill Gates, who you've mentioned, who used to be the richest man in the world. And he and his wife, Melinda, have now become the world's greatest leaders in the area of philanthropy. So when you interviewed Bill at the end, you asked him, what is he most proud and his answer? What, what has he done that he's most proud of? And his answer was his children. Did that answer surprise you? Well, no, I think many people, if you ask them uh, what they're most proud of, they would probably say uh, uh, their children in many ways, because uh, that's their real legacy in the end. Now, in Bill's case, um, his legacy will probably be Microsoft uh, to a greater extent and, and the philanthropic foundation and his children probably won't get as much attention. On the other hand, think about this. As all of you who are watching this know, the hardest thing in the world to do is to raising children. As Jackie Kennedy famously said, if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life really matters. So when you're raising children as the wealthiest man in the world, it's pretty easy to screw up your kids. 
And as we know, a lot of wealthy people have raised children are not so wonderful. So Bill has actually raised with his wife, Melinda, three balanced children who don't run around saying, my father's the richest man in the world. And they've actually done some pretty impressive things. So it's not easy coming from a wealthy family and having drive and so forth. It's a lot easier coming from a modest income family and have drive. But I think Bill Gates and Melinda have done a pretty good job of raising three children in a very difficult setting, you know, i.e. being the richest man in the world with the spotlight on you all the time. You also interviewed Melinda for the book uh, in her role as, as the head of the Gates Foundation. Uh, what's the essence of this leadership yin and yang that makes their marriage so dynamic? Well, of course, she's a native of the Dallas area. She grew up there and went to high school in the Dallas area. I'm proud to say she went to my alma mater subsequent to that, Duke University. And uh, she was very smart and had interesting computers, an offer from IBM, turned it down, went to Microsoft, met Bill, they got married. And then they began a very, very important partnership. Think about this. Generally, the richest man in the world at any given time is probably fairly reclusive and not easy to deal with. Howard Hughes, J. Paul Getty, when they were the richest men in the world, many people just said they never saw them because they didn't really do anything. They were just reclusive. Bill has not been reclusive. He built this company, but now he's giving away money, but he's very accessible. And being married to the richest man in the world, I wouldn't say that's easy. How many people have been the richest man in the world and had one wife? I would say many times the people who are the richest people in the world, richest men in the world, have multiple wives. He's had one wife. It's a terrific relationship. And I think the two of them get along quite well because they know when to work together and they know when to do the separate things. So in Melinda's case, she has focused on women and particularly in the emerging markets, the health problems that they have, the economic problems they have, and other kinds of things. And I think she's done a good job of separating herself from Bill in the sense that she has her own area to focus on in philanthropy. But they have a very good marriage and a very good partnership, and it's worked out well for the world because they're giving away more money than anybody in the history of the world. One of my favorite stories in the book is uh, when Melinda talks about, or maybe it was Bill, I can't remember, when they got the call from Warren Buffett. Uh, tell that story. It's yes, such a great uh, story. Bill Gates did not want to meet Warren Buffett. Initially, he just thought he was a stock trader and he didn't have any interest in it. His mother basically worked out a deal that he would come and spend an hour with, Bill, with uh, Warren Buffett one time, and he wound up spending like 10 hours with him. He was fascinated by Warren Buffett's brilliant mind. And although they're about 25 years apart in age, uh, they have bonded over the years and become great golfing partners, bridge partners, uh, and, and friends in, in social ways. And so uh, Warren Buffett's wife died uh, much earlier than he had ever expected. She died prematurely, and he had expected her to run the family foundation and give away the money. So he didn't really know to, what to do with this incredible fortune. So ultimately came up with a typical Warren Buffett idea, a brilliant idea. I'll give it to my friend Bill and Melinda, let them give it away because they have the same values I do. And they have a foundation and I just give them the money. And that's what they did. And, and Melinda and Bill talked about it and they cried how somebody would have that much confidence to give them 50 to $60 billion to give away however they want. And they did. And, he, and, and he's honored that promise. He doesn't want his name on the foundation. Warren Buffett is on the board, but he lets them run the foundation and give away the money he earned. Now, one of the many great things about your book is that you do a great job of balancing the number of men and women who you interviewed, and one of them, obviously, is Oprah Winfrey. So as you reflect on Oprah's unique stature, what do you regard as her most important trait that causes her to be such a powerful influencer in American society? Well, as I said, her, you know, it's interesting, she has a one-word name like Cher or Bono or Madonna. When you have only one word name, that's pretty impressive. 
And her one word name, though, was Oprah, but actually it was supposed to be Orpa. That was their parents wanted her to be named Orpa, and it got misspelled on the birth certificate. But her great skill is interviewing people, but not just asking them questions, but listening to them and then ultimately showing empathy with the answers she gets. Another woman who you interviewed in the book is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the second woman to serve on the Supreme Court, who, of course, just passed away after becoming a, an American icon. Uh, the first Supreme Court uh, female justice was Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, Mary Pat said you did not interview her, but you did interview Evan Thomas, who right. wrote a wonderful biography of her with her family's uh, full cooperation uh, after she had dementia. So what are your thoughts on the most important leadership traits of our first two women justices on the Supreme Court and the impact each of them had? Sandra Day um, was not a great legal scholar, but she uh, actually knew how to get along with people. She'd been a politician before she'd been a judge, and she knew how to get along with powerful men, and she knew how, in the end, to get things done. So she brought a, a different perspective to the Supreme Court, and she got people who had never really wanted to have lunch together to force them to have lunch together. And so she actually brought a certain civility to the Supreme Court that was quite important. Um, one thing that she didn't quite realize, though, is when she gave Evan Thomas access to her papers, she didn't know what was in the papers. And Evan Thomas found out, and the papers revealed, and ultimately his book revealed, that William Rehnquist had proposed marriage to her when they were students at uh, Stanford Law School, which nobody had ever known about, including her own children. Um, in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's case, she had an enormous intellect. She weighed about 100 pounds, 98 pounds of which were her, her brain. She just was very, very smart and had a great legal intellect. And even though she would disagree with people like Justice Scalia, they, she could bond with people, and they, they just admired her, her skills in trying to get along with people and, and understand the law. And also, she was great in terms of culture. As the chairman of the Kennedy Center, I spent many times with her as she came to the Kennedy Center. And, and over the years, of the 10 years I've been the chair of the Kennedy Center, I've introduced presidents of the United States, former presidents of the United States, great leaders from around the world. The biggest standing ovation always came for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 20-minute standing ovations, President of the United States might get two or three minutes. So clearly, she's a very popular person with many people. Well, uh, in this incredibly polarized society that we now find ourselves in, I think uh, one of her most enduring stories that I hope people will take to heart was the very close friendship she had with Justice Scalia, who was on the exact opposite side of the political scale from her, but that did not keep them from having a wonderful friendship. And, and I, I want that story to be told again and again as people uh, put their political differences aside and decide that they can, they can have fellowship with, with people who look at life a little differently from the political standpoint. Yes, when I, used to, when I worked in Congress in the 1970s, people of different political views got along socially. Now um, it's very difficult for people from one party to socialize with the other party, people from the other party, if it's public. So it's a very complicated, different environment. Same is true in the Supreme Court. Uh, today, members get along, even though they don't have the same views on things. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the polar opposite of Justice Scalia, but they had great social relationships, and it was a great, great friendship. Mm -hmm. Now, you have two sections of your book that are devoted to CEOs of major enterprises. One section is called for the builders of companies, which includes the leaders of Nike, Citadel, Vista, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Lockheed. And the other section is for 
Transformers, which includes the heads of Google, Apple, IBM, Pepsi, and Melinda Gates as the head of the Gates Foundation. So what's the most important difference in the leadership skills of a builder compared to a transformer? Well, a transformer is somebody who inherited something that was built before, may not have started it, but made it even better. A perfect example is Tim Cook. When Steve Jobs was the head of uh, and the founder of Apple, people thought nobody could ever replace him. And when he died at a very young age, relatively speaking, people thought, uh-oh, Tim Cook, he's not going to be good enough because he's not the visionary that, that Steve Jobs was. And, but it turned out that he did a great job doing different things than, than, uh, than Steve Jobs. For example, when Steve Jobs died, the market capitalization of that company was roughly $350 billion. Now it's about $2 trillion. So it's incredible what Tim Cook has done with a different personality. And I always say to people, think about John Wooden, the great basketball coach at UCLA. Who wanted to succeed him? Well, nobody really did. And the person that did succeed him lasted about two years. At my own uh, university, uh, Coach K has been, who's also in the book, uh, been the coach for some 40 years. Um, I wouldn't want to be the person who succeeds him. It might be quite difficult. Yeah, Coach K, that interview I, I loved because uh, I'm such a fan of his, as are you, obviously. Uh, his last, talk about his last season at Army and yet uh, how Duke made the decision to hire him. Well, he had, uh, after, he, after he finished his Army tour of duty, he went to work for, um, for Bobby Knight uh, for a while, and uh, then he went to, to Army. Well, Bobby Knight had been his coach at Army, then when Bobby Knight went to Indiana and Coach K was out of the military, he went as an assistant to Bobby Knight. Then he got the job of being the coach at Army, but he produced over five years a losing record. So uh, when Duke was interviewing people, people said, we'll never actually hire Krzyzewski. One, his name is unpronounceable. And secondly, he has a losing record. But ultimately, he did come into Duke, and he had a losing record at Duke for the first three years or so. But his contract was renewed, and then he turned out to be the greatest basketball coach in modern uh, memory. But I loved where he said, don't let one line item on a resume control your decision. Because his last year at Army, they were 9 and 17. Right. If you studied Army, they had all kinds of injuries that year. There are all kinds of reasons for it. And, and on the surface, it would have been easy to reject him based on a, on a losing record. But they looked past it. So I thought that was really uh, instructive. Uh, the leader of um, Citadel, uh, Ken Griffin, uh, one of the questions you ask him, and I'm sure everybody on this call would like to know, what are the most important questions for a leader to ask in an interview? And David, I'm sure you've interviewed tons of people uh, for your own yes. company. Uh, talk about uh, Ken Griffin's approach to, to interviewing. Well, Ken Griffin um, has built one of the best uh, securities trading firms in the, in the country and also one of the best hedge funds. He's become a very, very wealthy person as a result. Started out when he, in college, basically being a trader, and, and built the business right after college. Uh, he likes to interview people to see whether they have a passion for something. He wants to make sure they really care about something. Because his view is if you're passionate about something, you're likely to be able to be pretty productive. So he doesn't worry about their, their, their academic qualities so much. Um, he worries about whether they have a passion and a commitment and whether they want to do something meaningful with their life. And in some cases, when people have come to him and said, well, we're going to lose a really talented person. This person's going to do something else. Uh, he would say, well, that person's going to do something that's really useful for society. We should be happy that they're doing that. We can find somebody else. But when people are doing something useful for society, he thinks it's a good thing. And so he doesn't mind they're leaving his company. Mm -hmm. Now, you also have a section on commanders. 
uh, and it opens with your interview with Presidents George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, uh, two leaders who won several state and national elections. And also then you have interviews with Colin Powell, David Petraeus, Condi Rice, and James Baker, four leaders who never won an election. So what's your assessment of the most important traits a leader must have in order to win an election? Well, to win an election, I think you have to have a certain vision of where you're going to take uh, the, the country or the state or whatever you're, you're running for, and you have to have, be able to project that vision. And the, the interview that I did with Bill Clinton and George Bush together, I did it in Dallas at the Bush Library, and it turns out they get along quite well, although they had different political perspectives, of course, and different backgrounds. Bill, Bill Clinton came from a very modest background. George Bush's father was obviously president of the United States. But they got along quite well when they started doing philanthropic things together. And they both point out this. They're very happy in a job that I think is the best job in the world, former president of the United States. People like you a lot. Nobody criticizes you, and you can do pretty much what you want. But they actually say, no, the better job is being president of the United States, because that's when you can do something. You have power to help other people. And that's what they thought was the most useful thing about being president. You can actually help other people and get their lives to be better. Well, uh, of course, with each year, our 24-7, uh, 365 news cycle seems to get uh, more and more uh, influential, uh, such that every molehill gets turned into a mountain. Uh, do you think our most revered leaders, people like Colin Powell, Condi Rice, James Baker, uh, are those who never had to withstand the intense media scrutiny of an election? Well, there's no doubt that today the scrutiny of an election uh, is, is extraordinary, and it's hard to believe that humans can put up with this in many ways because you're being criticized every day. And the old days, 100 years ago, you were criticized in a daily news cycle. Now it's hourly or every minute you're criticized by some social media source. So you have to say to yourself, would the people who have built this country, the founding fathers, the people that gave us the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, would they be willing to subject themselves to the social media scrutiny of today? Maybe not. And maybe we wouldn't have uh, the kind of great leaders we had at the Constitutional Convention and the Declaration of Independence uh, Convention, uh, the Second Continental Congress. I do wonder if we ever had another constitutional convention, who would want to show up for it and whether we would get a better result. It certainly would be a more diverse group that would show up for it. But there's no doubt that the scrutiny today requires you to have a very thick skin. And many of the most talented people in the world and the country don't really want to put themselves through that, unfortunately. Um, we're fortunate that many years ago some talented people did. But today, I think a lot of great people don't want to do that. And in fact, Jim Baker. Um, yeah, there's an excellent book out now about Jim Baker, biography by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, his wife. And in that book, they point out, and I should say that Jim Baker was in my firm for about 12 years. Uh, Jim Baker considered running for president in 1996, and ultimately concluded that he probably didn't want to subject himself to all the criticism that he would get, even though he had a very good record as a, as a government official. But when you're running for office, it's much different. <clears throat> Well, I particularly liked your interview with Condi Rice when she got to talking about um, the importance for people uh, in any realm, but particularly people of color, uh, not to view themselves as victims and, and not to be disabled by people with prejudice. Uh, give us your thoughts on, on that uh, important perspective, which which I hope is one of the many messages 
that gets uh, distributed uh, throughout our society from your wonderful book. Well, Condi grew up with educated parents in, uh, in, in uh, Mississippi, but she, um, you know, she was an only child, but her, some of her friends were killed in the, bomb, um, in, in the bombing of a church in, in, uh, in Mississippi in that, that time. It was in uh, Montgomery, uh, Montgomery, or I think it was, um, or it was in- uh, uh, Was it Birmingham, Alabama? Birmingham. Birmingham, I think it was. That's right. So she, um, she, she had a lot of resilience. She wanted to be a concert pianist and ultimately decided uh, maybe she'd be an international professor and a diplomat. And ultimately, George W. Bush recognized her talent and made her national security advisor and uh, secretary of state, the first African-American woman to hold either position. She's resisted efforts to run for president or be on the ticket as a vice president. She's quite happy not being in politics now, but she did an extraordinary job and she showed, some, showed that you can rise up from very modest roots in this country if you're very talented. Well, uh, another uh, section of your book is called Masters. And that's where you interviewed leaders uh, from the sports world. We've mentioned Coach Krzyzewski, but also Jack Nicklaus for all the golfers on this call. I thought the Jack Nicklaus chapter was one of the most fascinating. And from the entertainment world, singer Renee Fleming, cellist Yo-Yo Ma, and Saturday Night Live founder and producer Lauren Michaels. I know you've interviewed many masters uh, other than those. Uh, what was your process for selecting those interviews? Well, um, one, you have to get people that were willing to interview, and usually you have people I know, so that's a factor. I know the people, and it makes it comfortable for them to in be interviewed with me. But I interviewed, I probably had 85 or 90 interviews from which to choose, in uh, uh, the people who put in this book. And so it's an awkward thing to send uh, a copy of the book with my signature on it to people who I interviewed but didn't put in the book. So I blame people, I blame the publisher for that. I always say the publisher made the decisions and I would have put you in the book, but the publisher didn't want you in. So I had to blame somebody else. But the truth is, uh, those are very talented people I put in there. They're representative of people that have a certain skill, they perfected it, they've mastered it. Renee Fleming just worked so hard to make herself an opera singer, though she wasn't by nature a gifted one at the beginning. And obviously Yo-Yo Ma came over, came some physical uh, and, and challenges and other become the greatest cellist in the world. And, uh, and as you point out, one of the most popular shows on television for the last 45 years has been Saturday Night Live that Lauren Michaels put together. So, to be, and Jack Nicholas is the person who just perfected the art of golf, but also I think the art of being humble when you achieve things. And I'd like to point out in the book, that there are many great attributes that people have. I've said that, that learning how to fail is important. Having luck is important. Uh, persistence is important. Focus is important. But humility is very important. And I think that many of the most important people that I've interviewed are really humble. And I tell people, if you're not humble, fake it. Because people <laughs> enjoy people that have some humility. And if you're not really humble, maybe pretend you are. Because I think people will, will think better of you for that. Well, one of the things Jack Nicholas said that really stood out for me, I mean, on the one hand, yes, he's uh, a very humble person given all of his uh, accomplishments. But uh, you ask him what's the most important thing to be a golf champion, and he said you must have a high degree of self-confidence, but you must play within yourself. Uh, talk about your thoughts on what you just said about humility, but also the importance of self-confidence. Yeah, you can't have uh, no confidence in yourself if you're going to get anywhere. You have to have some sense that you're, you're capable of doing things. And Jack Nicholson, because he practiced a lot, 
had a lot of good coaches and other things, did have confidence. And obviously, when he won early tournaments, it helped. But I think one of the most important things about Jack Nicklaus is that while we know him as maybe the greatest golfer, certainly with Tiger Woods, the two greatest golfers in the world, I would say that he's very uh, family-oriented. Although he was a professional golfer traveling all over, all over the world, he had a rule, I will never be away from my family more than two weeks at a time. And so he had uh, five children, 22 grandchildren, been married for more than 60 years, and now he's devoting himself to philanthropy. The Children's Hospital in Miami is now named after him, and he's spending the mo most of his time raising money for and giving money to the Children's Hospitals in, in Florida. So a very impressive person and a very impressive family. Another thing that stood out in the Mike Krzyzewski chapter, uh, when he talked about great leaders not only have to be able to talk well, but talk in a, in a manner in which they are actually conversing, such right. that it's not just a one-way street. Uh, talk about that trait uh, in your own company, as well as uh, your thoughts on Krzyzewski's uh, perspective. Well, in Krzyzewski's case, the world has changed. It used to be you would recruit young players and they have four years to make them into young men. Maybe some would play, play professional basketball. But the truth is most people would not make it to the NBA. Now he has to, as a, he's a 72 or 73 years old, he has to go into the homes of 17-year-olds. Very often they're African-American. He's white. And he has to convince a 17-year-old African-American basketball player that he is the right person to coach him. And, you know, they have a 50-year age gap or more or less. And so it's difficult. Now, he does have some effective ways of doing it. He recruits great players. And I think one of his better lines is, you know, young man, you remind me of LeBron James. And if you come to me, I'm going to coach you the way I coach LeBron James in the Olympics. That's probably com pretty compelling when a young man is hearing that he's like LeBron James. But Coach K, even without having coached the Olympics and he won three gold medals, is an impressive person. And he's most proud of having achieved the idea of not just winning five national championships, but taking young boys and young athletes and making them to very good citizens and very good men, very often who have their college degrees. Now, a question that you ask uh, in probably at least half the interviews in the book, which I thought was intriguing, was, did your parents live to see your success? Why is that an important question for you? Well, because uh, I think uh, what is the pleasure of life? It's if you're a parent, seeing your child be successful. Um, one of the most important things you want as a parent is to have a successful and healthy and happy child. And I think if you can do this while your parent's alive, it's a great pleasure. So um, I think in my own parents' case, they, they've now passed away, but they, they, they live to see a lot of the things that I achieved, and they were quite proud of it. And I think it's, it's a, one of the great pleasures of life is being able to see your children do something uh, you know, important. In fact, along those lines, uh, one of my favorite uh, interviews was with uh, the woman who is the head of Pepsi and her approach to affirming her top employees. Talk, talk about that. Yes, Indra Nui, who had the difficult job of not only being a woman CEO, but an immigrant woman CEO in a Fortune 500. I think at the time, she was the only female CEO who is an immigrant in the United States in the Fortune 500. And she ran Pepsi for 12 years. And she had a good way of kind of bonding with her senior people because what she would do is she would send report cards in effect on how the senior people were doing to the senior people's parents. And of course, if you're a parent and you get a report card saying your child is doing a great job, naturally that parent is going to call up Ingenuity and say, hey, thank you for letting me know my child's doing a good job. But also that parent will call up the son or the daughter and say, be certain that you stay at Pepsi because you have a terrific boss. 
she thinks great things about you. So attended the bond people with Ingenue and she and a lot and a lot of good people stayed there as a result. Well, and that light bulb kind of went on for her after she I think it was when she became the CEO of Pepsi and she went home. Right. Uh, talk about that scene uh, where all the guests came uh, with her mother there. Right. Uh, talk about that. Well, her mother was a strong-willed uh, woman who who's, was living in India, came over to visit, and uh, Indra Nui had just been named president, was about to be named uh, publicly the next day. And so she came home, her mother was there, and she came home and said, Mom, I have something important to tell you. I'm going to tell you about a big announcement. And she said, I don't want to hear any announcement. You have to go out and get some milk. You're the mother here. You're not the, the person from Pepsi, and we don't have any milk in the house. Your kids need milk. So go out, buy some milk, come back, and then I'll listen to you. And so she realized that her mother was uh, still an important person in her life. She went out, she got the milk, came back and said, I'm going to be the president of Pepsi. And her mother said, that's okay. But the most important thing is you got the milk for your kids. Right. And then, but her mother invited her friends over and they didn't really want to talk to the daughter so much. They wanted to praise the mother for yes. having raised this fabulously successful daughter. And she, and, and she did a great job of raising her. And uh, Indra Nui is an incredible person. She ran Pepsi for 12 years, did a terrific job. And um, when I interviewed her, um, she even convinced me that potato chips are healthy for you. So she's obviously very impressive. Yeah, I love that. Uh, when they asked which was her most delicious treat that Pepsi had. She said, oh, Fritos, Fritos. <laughs> I right. love that. All right, we're going to start uh, taking some questions uh, from the audience, uh, David. Uh, here's one that is tied into the pandemic. In a virtual work environment, workers have little opportunity to see leaders in action. What would you recommend young workers do to address this gap in observed leadership? Well, I think uh, in the virtual world, I think you can, uh, through Zoom or the Zoom equivalent, um, uh, talk to um, uh, your boss or the boss can talk to you. So I recommend that uh, CEOs or the equivalent have town hall meetings or the equivalent uh, communications with their employees. Obviously, the humans like human contact and, and, and sensing people through, uh, you know, some more physical uh, approximation rather than just through Zoom. But I do think in this environment, you can make some improvements over just uh, a computer uh, presentation of something by trying to ask questions of your employees, letting your employees talk to you, and doing it relatively frequently. That's all you can do until this uh, period is behind us. Though I do think when it's behind us, we won't go back to the old days anyway completely. We will still be doing, doing a lot of Zooming for quite some time because a lot of people, I think, really like this, not as a full-time diet, but I think a lot of people realize they don't have to travel as much. They can get a lot of work done uh, by doing kind of Zooming. So I think it's going to be here for quite some time. Thank goodness for Zoom. We would not be doing this program today if it wasn't right. for Zoom. <laughs> uh, here's somebody who's obviously read the book, and it's an important uh, theme, uh, is that our best leaders are, are often those that didn't experience a lot of success early in their lives. So talk about this concept yeah, yeah. that you break life into thirds, third, third, and third. Well, this is, might be a rationalization for my own failure to be a leader when I was young, but I divided life into thirds. The first third is you're getting educated. The second third, you're really booming in your career. You're moving forward. And the third third is when you're kind of resting on the laurels of what you achieved or you're kind of uh, not quite pushing yourself the way you did in the second third. And all of us have been in schools where we've seen very talented students who were first in the class. They became president of the student body. They may become an all-state or all-American athlete. They later became Rhodes Scholars president of the Harvard Law Review, editors of the Yale Law Journal, Supreme Court clerks, White House fellows, 
what happens to these people in the second and third third of life? Well, some of them do go on and do good things, but generally the people running the world are people that in the second and third third have of their lives have zoomed past or moved past the people in the first third because the people in the first third may have burned out, they may have been tired, or maybe they just didn't have the skill set to keep working so well in the second or third third of life. So I'm trying to say to people, if you're not a superstar in the first third, as I was certainly not, uh, you can keep working like the tortoise and the hare, and eventually um, the, the, the tortoise will bypass the hare. So even if you are not a superstar you know, early on, you can become very successful later on. And as George Bush famously said, George W. Bush, in his Yale commencement address, all of you A students out there, you're no doubt going to do very well. All of you B students, you'll probably have a pretty good career as well. But your C students out here, all of you, you could be president of the United States. <laughs> Now, one of the things that I neglected to mention in the introduction is how you are the leader of patriotic philanthropy. And those who go visit Washington, D.C., where David works and lives, uh, David gave several million dollars for the restoration of the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial. He's the past chairman of the Smithsonian, very great leader in the Library of Congress. Uh, as well as head of the Kennedy Center and the, and the Council on Foreign Relations, as John mentioned in the introduction. Where did this idea of patriotic philanthropy come from, David? Usually, uh, good ideas or good ideas don't come from McKinsey or some consulting firm. Uh, it's something that happens by serendipity. Most of the great things that happen in life kind of by accident. So I uh, uh, happened to read that the Magna Carta was going to be for sale. I, was, I went to the sale. I was told it was going to leave the country. It was owned by Ross Perot from Dallas, and ultimately I decided to keep it in the country, and then I led me to buy other historic documents, and then when the Washington Monument had its earthquake damage, I decided to put up the money and so on. And so I ultimately uh, called all of this patriotic philanthropy. By that, I mean giving money to remind people the history and heritage of our country, the good and the bad. So when I put up the money to redo Monticello, I wanted to make certain that the slave quarters were built out so people could see that Thomas Jefferson, for all of his strengths, was a slave owner, and we should recognize that. And so when the debate over what we should do with these monuments and memorials comes along, I think we shouldn't tear down something that was put up for the right reason. The Washington Monument was not put up because George Washington was a slave owner, which he was, but it was put up because he was our first president. He led the Revolutionary War. He presided over the Constitutional Convention. And so we should let people know about some of the flaws that he had and the flaws of everybody when we have monuments and memorials, but we shouldn't tear them all down if they were put up for the right reason. And so I've called patriotic philanthropy a way of reminding people of our past on the theory that the more we know about our past, the better we'll be in the future because we can avoid the mistakes of the past and get civilization to move forward. Uh, a recurring theme in all your interviews is how uh, most of the people you interview are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and yet they're continuing to grow. They're, they're not standing down. They're not retiring. They're, they're taking on new challenges. And that's certainly true of you. So what is your personal strategy for, for keeping that, that growth strategy in the front of your brain? Well, you know, um, I'm now 71 years old. And when, when Ronald Reagan was running against my former boss, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan was 69. I said, how can anybody that old get out of bed in the morning? Now I'm 71, and I say it's not that hard to get out of bed in the morning, so I underestimated Ronald Reagan at 69. Uh, my generation is the baby boomer generation, and when we were growing up, people retired when they were 60 or 65. We're going forward, and it seems as if our generation should be renamed not the baby boomer generation, but we're not getting off the main stage generation. You can't get rid of us. We're here. People running for president are in their 70s. The next president of the United States will be in the 70s. So 
I am trying to uh, do as many things as I can. I call it um, kind of sprinting the finish line. I'm afraid if I stop and slow down, something bad will come along and, and get me. So I'm just moving forward and not giving anything bad a chance to kind of come into my body and, and do something bad. But as we all know, uh, when you get to be a certain age, and my parents used to say it's about the age 50, the body doesn't work quite as well as it used to, and the brain can slow down a little bit. So um, I'm trying to get things done before either my brain slows down or the body says I've had enough of this. So I'm just going to keep going until one of those things happens. Now, here's a question from the audience who notices that obviously you're a very serious sports fan and have been your whole life. Uh, what similarities do you see between leaders in competitive sports and leaders in industry? Well, both of them have to um, get other people to follow them. In other words, very rarely, maybe in golf or maybe in tennis, but generally team sports are the ones where you see great leadership, coaches, or, or players that are the, the star players, they have to get other people to come along. A quarterback can't run the whole team by himself. Um, you know, a, a pitcher can't win the game by himself. So you need to be able to project to other people that they need to work hard too. So you got to be a leader of other people, and that's true in business as well. No business person can accomplish anything by himself or herself. You've got to motivate other people. And the key to being a leader is motivating people. And you have to persuade them to move forward. And the best way to persuade people is not by a speech or by a book, but it's leading by example. You do what you want people to do, and they will follow you. That's the theory of great leadership. Here's another question. Uh, it recognizes that uh, many of the in individuals who you interviewed for the book have very different leadership styles. So is, quote, style overrated as a measure of leadership, or is leadership based more on situation and uh, the sector? Well, every human has his or her own, own different perspectives and different styles. Some people are more modest than others. Some people are louder than others. Some people lead by example. Some lead by giving good speeches. So I think it's different, but I, I do think that the situation is important. So for example, if Abraham Lincoln had been elected president and we didn't have the Civil War then, he might not even be remembered today. So, or FDR had been president, we weren't in World War II or the Depression, he might not be remembered. So the situation you find yourself in can make you a much greater leader. And one of the traits I describe in the book is rising to the occasion. So in other words, um, you need to be, a, to be a great leader, you need to rise to the occasion. So in my own view, for example, a person that's done that recently is uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, who's written up in the book somebody I interviewed actually twice for the book. I think that while people have criticized him from time to time, he is not uh, paying attention to that. He's moving forward, and in my view, rising the occasion, doing the best he can. I asked him subsequent to the interview in the book whether he ever considered quitting because of the criticism, and he said, David, my job is to save lives. I'm an infectious disease person. I will never quit because I want to save lives. And that's the kind of perspective I think you really want in a great leader. Here's... Uh a question that's now been asked twice, and it'll be my final question before I turn it over to Dale. Uh, is there anybody uh, who you really want to interview who you have not yet had the opportunity to interview? Well, of course, there are people that don't give out a lot of interviews. So Queen Elizabeth doesn't do a lot of interviews. The Pope is not famous for a lot of interviews. Xi Jinping is probably not giving me a lot of interviews. I did interview Donald Trump before he was president. He said he would let me interview him uh, at some point during the presidency, then uh, the virus took over. I hope to get it scheduled at one point. But I think the most interesting thing would be, I wish I could interview people who are no longer alive because you know, it's the interview format is relatively new. So there are no interviews of Julius Caesar. There are no interviews of William Shakespeare. 
there's no interviews of Charlemagne. And I'd love to ask, you know, King Henry VIII, why didn't you uh, have prenuptial agreements rather than have to chop off the heads of your, your wives? Or William Shakespeare, who really wrote those plays for you? Or Abraham Lincoln, uh, did you win the war by yourself or did you have other people to help you? And so those are the questions I, I won't be able to ask those people uh, anytime soon, but I wish we had interviews of people from hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. It would edify us a lot to know what they really thought. As productive as you are, are you already at work on your next book? I, I am. Um, I would say it's, it's called The American Experience. It's about what makes people uniquely American. What makes this country so different than all the other countries in the world? What are the qualities that people regard as so significant that we are distinctive? Like for example, one of them is the American dream. We all believe in the American dream. Obviously, it's been easier for other people than some to, to do it. But uh, that's a quality that's very distinctively American. You can rise from the, bottom, from the bottom and come up. That's a very distinctly American kind of trait. And I'm going to analyze a number of those traits through interviews of my own writing in the next book. Well, we can hardly wait and hope that when it comes out, you'll remember how much your friends in Dallas enjoy hearing okay. you talk about your books. So I'm now going to turn the program over to Dale Petrosky, my great friend and the fearless president and CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber. Uh, Dale, close it out for us. Well, first of all, thank you, Talmadge. Thank you for bringing this program to us. Uh, you are the, the greatest interviewer I, interviewer I know in Dallas or anywhere else, really. So you're great. You and David together probably make a pretty good team. Uh, David, love, on top of all your accomplishments, love your sense of humor, love your common sense approach to life, and thank you for the gift of sharing your stories of these great leaders with us today. Really, really appreciate it. Can't wait to read the book. David Rubenstein is not only a brilliant businessman and a major philanthropist, he's also a great storyteller and purveyor of wisdom, as you just heard. You can find David's new book, How to Lead, wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.